In the summer of 2018, England was in the middle of a record-breaking heat wave. But in Cambridge, at the headquarters of the British Antarctic Survey, a team of researchers was studying life on the coldest continent. So the archive is tucked away, and there's all these, like, deep freeze trucks coming in and out. And, like, you know, even though that was a particularly hot summer, you know, you have people that keep a parka in their office just in case they have to go up and, like, look at Antarctic spider crabs or something, you know. I never got to see any of the... um like deep, deep freeze, like cold habitat uh, critters. That's Andrew Avery. He was a PhD student studying a species that is not native to Antarctica, humans, and our desire to conquer the continent. Andrew was at the British Antarctic Survey studying archival documents, old magazines, supply lists, scientific reports, budgets. And one day, one of the archivists rolled their cart up to Andrew's desk and said, Hey, you might be interested in this. And so he drops this folio in my lap. It was just a white paper folder, about the size of a standard manila envelope. It looked like every other one Andrew had seen that day. He opened it. I think the first thing I I saw was like a sealed letter, sealed and just covered in stamps. Someone wanted to be very sure that letter made it all the way to its destination. And underneath that envelope, there were dozens more. Old letters, faded, worn by time. So you have all these letters of various shapes and sizes and lengths, and of course they're coming from all over the place, all over Europe, and also India, and Australia, and um, the United States. Aumüller, 22nd Auckland, New Zealand, 5th of West Wickham, Kent, 6th January, 1948. What I saw was just a a small sample of what I'm sure was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of letters. Dear Reverend. Sir. Gentlemen. Dear Sir, as I write, I have before me a photograph of the loneliest post office in the world. And being a close... The letters Andrew was holding were more than 70 years old. They had traveled thousands of miles by train and by boat across continents and oceans. It would have taken months, maybe even a year, for them to find their way to the loneliest post office in the world. It's one of these things that on the surface, you're like, well, it's a post office. And you're like, well, it's never just a post office, especially in a place like Antarctica. I'm April White, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're visiting that far-flung post office. Geopolitical intrigue, stamp collectors, and lots of penguins. After this. For your next vacation spot, check out Texas for their vast landscape of culture, regions, destinations, and activities. Explore 350 miles of coastline and every kind of hiking trail, from strenuous to wheelchair accessible. Enjoy world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Travel Texas even offers an online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. You like to watch new stuff, right? 
Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Port Lockroy is an icy harbor near the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, far, far away from human civilization. But in February 1944, after a long two-month journey, nine British sailors arrived. The landers had dumped us, us and our gear ashore and coal for two years and food for two years and everything from a kitchen stove to a sail needle, as it were. That's Guion Davies, recorded for an oral history project. In 1944, he was a 27-year-old whaler, a Cambridge graduate with a talent for fixing pretty much anything, which came in handy at the end of the earth. Guion had been recruited for a top-secret mission. Britain's goal was to establish the first permanent settlement in Antarctica. Well, what could be there? Could that be precious minerals, large deposits of something valuable? That's Andrew Avery again. He studies the imperial history of Antarctica. And then on top of it, you get to flex on everyone else in the world and say, like, we've been there. It was also the middle of World War II, and Britain was a little worried the Germans might already be using the harbors along the Antarctic Peninsula to shelter U-boats or store fuel. But when Guion and his shipmates arrived, there were no Germans. There were no humans at all. I think one of the things I remember is that eerie feeling of going on to places where no man had ever trodden before since the earth was made. That was one thing, it was quite eerie, you know. And uh, not only that, but the scenery itself was very grim, just very majestic, very grim, it just a uh, you know, brooding kind of threat behind you all the time, what with that and the weather. And uh, it made you feel you're very much out of place in a place like that. Guion and his shipmates had to do was build shelter in the middle of a summer snowstorm. Actually, there was quite a lot of complaining about this because the prefabricated huts were almost like a build-it-yourself summer house. So they were meant for the English countryside. They were not meant for the Antarctic. Snow found its way into the buildings, and all that coal they brought froze solid in the storm. Whenever the furnace ran low, someone had to take a crowbar and hack the coal out of the ice. These men had been sent to Antarctica with grand geopolitical ambitions. But day to day, it was easy to forget the rest of the world existed at all. They were focused on the secondary part of their mission, science. Oh, yes, I built, built my contraption and we did some, we took, I think, the first iron strike measurements actually done in Antarctica. These are more voices from the oral history archive. We naturally had to... Uh, collect and relay the weather reports. We made, as I recollect, a large-scale map of the harbor at Port LaCroix. And then there was the local wildlife to document, particularly the penguins. We had 110,000 of them uh, because we hunted them. And uh, 
they are very brave and they stand up for their rights. Yeah, as it turns out, penguins don't take very kindly to being counted. So I think many, many a British man has been um, struck with the flippers of a penguin. Apparently they can be quite aggressive. I believe one man described being slapped by a penguin like, um, you know, when you're a kid and you take a stick and you run down like a like a metal fence, like that's how he described this Gentoo penguin just like coming at him. And that's how these men spent their days, hacking off chunks of frozen coal, mapping the harbor and getting slapped around by penguins. But every once in a while, another ship would arrive. You see, Britain wasn't the only country that had taken an interest in the Antarctic continent. And usually what they, these men had to do as far as their political work is they had to hand out little protest notes. You know, a ship from Argentina will come into port. The British officer will walk out. He's got his typed up little protest note. He says to the Argentinian captain, you know, well, I'm afraid I have to inform you, you are uh, trespassing on crown lands, in which case the Argentinian officer hands him his own protest note and says, well, I regret to inform you that it is you, in fact, who are trespassing. And then they'd toss those notes aside and they'd have a drink or throw a party. It was all geopolitical theater. About once a year, though, the ship coming into the harbor would be flying the Union Jack. That meant supplies and the mail. The mail was good for morale, and it was also part of Britain's big plan for Antarctica. They're saying, well, you know, how does one prove ownership over a place with no native populace? What you do is you connect it into a bureaucracy, and in this case, that's the Royal Mail. There were even special stamps printed for Port Lockroy. Little green rectangles with a portrait of King George VI and a map to the South Pole. But those stamps went mostly unused because, well, the post office didn't get much mail. I mean, it was on a secret base. But in late 1945, World War II ended. And that's when the mission shifted from a military one to a diplomatic one. Suddenly, the British wanted the world to know that they were in Antarctica. And once the world knew, the world of stamp collectors knew. Sir, I venture to request from you to please hand this card to a person in your postal district who would be inclined to... Stamp collectors from all over the world were writing, hoping to get their hands on one of those little green rectangles. A great deal of them are very to the point and business-like. You know, dear sir, could you send me five canceled stamps? Could you please mount copies of each of the one penny, tuppence, threepence, fourpence, sixpence, ninepence, and one shilling, and the one penny and threepence peace stamps? I would appreciate it very much if you would autograph, place your name in ink in your native language in the upper left-hand corner of the enclosed envelope. This signature need not be that of the postmaster. Some of these stamp collectors are not just detailed, but getting a... If someone has written multiple times and hadn't heard back, they're liable to get a little aggressive in their, you know, in their letters. Will you forgive me for bothering you again? My brother has already sent you a request for a cover to be returned to him with stamps placed on it from your country. But they also received touching letters, like this one, written in Tacoma, Washington, on February 22nd, 1947. I'm a disabled veteran of the last World War, Unable to work, so I've taken up an old hobby again, postage stamp collecting, 
in order to help pass the many idle hours. I just found out that your dependency issues its own postage stamps, therefore I am writing to you to help further my collection, which gives me much pleasure, and to realize an ambition. I am trying to get a cover, parentheses, stamped envelope, from every stamp-issuing country in the world. I don't know, something very profound in that, and then... He's not the only one. I think you get a lot of people that are searching for some sort of connection, and for some reason, um, the connection they've chosen uh, happens to work at a, you know, post office in the Antarctic. Responding to all those letters was a lot of work. So eventually, the men at Port Lockroy were told not to postmark stamps for collectors. They typed up a short-form letter to send back in response to those requests. Ironically, these rejection letters would be sent in an envelope using one of those little green rectangular stamps. And so the collectors kept writing until 1962. All the countries with a presence in Antarctica had signed a treaty agreeing to stop colonizing the continent. Britain didn't need to hand out protest notes or provide mail service anymore. So the postmasters packed up their stuff and the loneliest post office in the world was left to the penguins. But that is not the end of the story. The same treaty that closed the post office, it made Port Lockroy a historic site. The site sat untouched for decades, but in 1996, the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust reopened the post office, staffing it with four people each summer. Uh, My name is Hannah Johns, and I was the former postmaster of Port Lockroy. Hannah lived on the island in 2017 and 2018, in the very same buildings that the men who first came to Port Lockroy did. And Hannah's team of four, all women this time, they had a lot of the same responsibilities those first residents did. They stamped letters and counted penguins. The easy part of it is when they are still in the egg form. The next stage is when they hatch. You're then counting very tiny, adorable little chicks. The the real fun part comes when the chicks start to crash. So they're old enough, big enough to leave their nest. It's now like trying to count a whole load of uh, toddlers or teenagers who just run around in a big group. The penguins are no longer the only company on this tiny island. About 18,000 people now visit each year. They come to experience the beauty of Antarctica and to learn about Port Lockroy's history. They know about the post office. They want to send their postcards from the post office. And we have to hand cancel every single one of those postcards. And when you've got about 80,000 to do in one season, um, it's good. But it involves a lot of stamping. And some visitors will send one postcard, maybe to themselves. Others will send 50 postcards. These tourists might fill a postcard with a short message about their time in Antarctica. And like the postcard itself, their experience of Antarctica is just a snapshot. Hannah, on the other hand, got the real thing. The same Antarctica those first postmasters encountered. It's the place, it's the feelings it evokes. It's the purity of the snow on a blue sky day. 
just sitting and being with the penguins, with the birds overhead, maybe with the sounds of some carving of the ice or the sound of the waves. It's a place that would be hard to have that experience anywhere else in the world, I think. That's how Guion Davies felt. Late in his life, he wrote a rhyme to describe his experience back in the 1940s. Antarctica is frozen by the cold of outer space. For there the sunlight shines too low to thaw the snow and ice. It is the icy threshold of the living world we know unto the starry heavens at 265 below. And when the blinding blizzard blows and scalds your hands and face, it feels as though it's coming from the depths of outer space. What makes it feel so awesome is not so much the cold as being in the firmament beyond the living world. And that's really the guts of it. Special thanks to Andrew Avery, Hannah Johns, and the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thanks also to the British Antarctic Survey for allowing us to use tape from their oral history archives. If you want to learn more about the work they do or listen to more of the interviews we excerpted in this episode, you can visit bas.ac.uk. There's a link in the show notes. The letters in this episode were read by Sam Blackman, Fabian Kaufman, Christoph Ludelling, Luke McLeod, and Theo Watson. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Ellie Katz, Sarah Wyman, and edited by John Delore. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Chris Naka, Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, Casey Holford, This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme music and credit music is by Sam Tyndall. From the loneliest post office in the world, I'm April White. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.